0: Welcome to How to Cover an Election, where four broadcast journalism students tackle an election campaign for the first time. Each
1: week we're talking to experts in their fields as we look at all the key themes for the media in the build-up to the
2: polls.
3: We'll also talk you through our experiences of election coverage as the contest heats up.
2: This week we'll talk to former BBC Director of News Richard Sandbrook, who tells us how the media plan for a general election.
1: Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of How to Cover an Election. This week we're very excited to be bringing you an interview with former BBC Director of News, Professor Richard Sandbrook. But first we should really introduce ourselves. So we're four broadcast journalism students here at Jomec in Cardiff, and we're the so-called political press pack on, on this year's course. Good timing, obviously, with the election coming up. My name's Gareth, first of all. I'm from Bedwes, just outside Caerphilly.
3: I'm Chloe, and I'm from a village called Nelson in the South Wales Valleys.
2: I'm Evan, I'm from Penergros, a small village by Hammerford in South West Wales.
0: And I'm Will, I'm the only English man on this podcast, and I'm from North London. Over the next five weeks, you'll be following us as we report on our first ever general
1: election. You'll hear how we find stories, how we present that information to the public through a variety of mediums, and more importantly, from a variety of expert guests along the way. Without further ado, this is the first of those experts.
4: Richard, how many general elections did you cover when you were at the BBC? Well, when I was at the BBC, I think it was six elections that uh, I covered in 30 years. So, my very first general election was as a reporter on weekly newspapers here in South Wales, which is in 1979, the year that Margaret Thatcher got elected, so uh, Prime Minister. So, uh, that makes me ancient history, really.
3: <laughs> how would you say covering an election has changed?
4: It's changed in many different ways. So firstly, the technology has changed. Um, So in broadcasting, that means satellite technology, so we can go live from the campaign trail in all sorts of ways and obviously do live interviews and and, um, connect with the um, uh, correspondents live and so on as well. But particularly at the minute, social media that everybody talks about, and that has accelerated the news cycle. So obviously things break on social media, gaffes get picked up. There's a lot of commentary going on there. Uh, I have mixed feelings about that. I think mm-hmm. people probably take too much, pay too much attention to that at times. But it's undoubtedly a very big factor but also of course the parties have also changed the way that they manage and run elections as well and um one time it would have been a lot of set piece picture photo opportunities picture opportunities the battle buses going around britain there's still a bit of that but a lot more of it now is tailored to live coverage and and what's happening in social media and of course um you know newsrooms have to respond to that I wanted to ask, then, in terms of how
2: uh, it's sort of evolving, you've mentioned there, um, I know that you covered the the Blair years and Campbell. Um, You know, with the the press machines, the spin doctors, you know, the likes of Cummings now,
4: has it made a lot of difference from maybe the Campbell era to the Cummings era? Uh, It's difficult for me to say, because obviously I'm not working in the newsroom now with the the kind of Dominic Cummings spin, but I, I would say overall the pressure from the party apparatchiks, as it were, gradually got more and more intense and that particularly was true during the uh, the Blair years and the run up to 97 with Peter Mandelson and then uh, Alistair Campbell. I think it relaxed a little bit after, um, after Blair and around the coalition but I think both the Scottish referendum and the Euro referendum have really ramped that up again and now of course we live in this era of kind of post-truth, fake news, mm-hmm. people getting away with outright lies and all the rest of it. So I think it's probably worse than ever at the minute, and that's a huge challenge for journalists trying to report politics.
3: Mm. Just going back to the fake news that you mentioned there, how do you go about uh, approaching you know, the rise of fake news and that, how that affects covering a general election?
4: Well, I, I think um, that broadcasters and all news organisations ought to be putting far greater emphasis on fact-checking. And although, you know, lots of people say, oh, well, you know, the public don't care about facts, it's all emotion and, you know, we are so polarised and all the rest of it. Nevertheless, the point of reporting elections is to inform the public so they can make an informed choice about who they vote for, and that remains the role. And in order to do that, you have to fact-check. And I think because we're in this political climate at the minute where there's a lot of exaggeration and hyperspin, hyperbole and outright lying much more emphasis needs to be put on fact checking that should be much more front and centre in everybody's coverage. So in terms of this election
2: I think it's quite a unique election in a sense but we've sort of known it's been coming for a long time but we're just waiting for the trigger to be blown really is when it's going to start so how would you go about planning an election
4: which is upcoming. Well, so there's a lot of different elements that you have to try to coordinate. I mean, on the one hand, you need to simply report what the repart- what the parties are offering in their manifestos, what their policies are going to be, and you know, and what they're saying they want to do, what their campaigning is on. And parties have the right to put that forward in whatever terms they choose to put it forward in. So you have to report that. But secondly, you also have to challenge it. So if there are exaggerations or lies or if statistics are being misused or whatever, absolutely you should be calling that out. Um, but thirdly, you also have to make sure that um, you uh, report and analyse Areas of policy that none of the parties may want to talk about, um, you know, so they may maybe they may want to concentrate on the NHS and, you know, other parties will want to concentrate on Europe. But there'll be all sorts of other areas of policy which are very important housing, for example, or, um, uh, you know, rural affairs or whatever it may be, which aren't front and centre, but which affect people's lives very deeply. And it's important, I think, for an election campaign for the broadcasters to absolutely interrogate those areas, even if the parties don't want to talk about it. So you've got to try and and manage a mix of all of those different things.
3: So the public may not be aware of the guidelines regulated by Ofcom that broadcasters have to follow. So what are the rules that broadcasters have to contend with over the next six weeks?
4: Well, uh, obviously, all broadcasters are regulated by Ofcom to be impartial. So they have to think about how they manage balance now that is not um, strict stopwatch impartiality it used to be the case that um, uh, broadcasters would literally put a stopwatch on you know the amount of voice that a- each party got during a campaign today we talk about due impartiality even in an election campaign so they can make some judgment about being fair so it's really being fair to all parties that they all get a chance to have their say if you like during the course of the campaign it gets complicated because, of course, if there's a, 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 a politician who has a really bad interview, they may well get five minutes of airtime, but it may not well count very much in their favour. So they may not think that that's, you know, fair to, to, to count that as them putting their case forward or whatever. So these things get complicated and that's why there's controversy and so on during a campaign. But overall, the broadcasters have to manage due impartiality across all the parties and they can't just concentrate on one or two parties. They need... If they're doing constituency profile, for example, they've got to mention every candidate and every party that's standing there to make sure there's a kind of that the, that the public are, are aware, in a broad sense and fairly, about what's what's being put forward. So, in terms
2: of us, then, as like journalists going forwards, um, when we cover a party campaign or uh, in a constituency, something like that, uh, how do we not become you know, PR soundbites, for party political broadcasts and things like that, how can we remain neutral but cover it in a fair way?
4: Well, I think this is absolutely at the heart of the issue for you, really. So, as I said, you've got to report what the parties are saying, but you've got to have some independence and some distance to be able to question that as well, to be able to fact-check it, to be able to perhaps challenge them on things that they don't want to talk about, um, they, you know you report what they do want to talk about but you also need to be able to put to them the, the other things that they don't want to talk about and you need to be able to fact check them and that means remaining some in uh, keeping some independence from you know the agenda that the parties are trying to set and that can be very difficult because of course all the political parties and their you know their spin merchants and com, you know whole communications is trying to drive you to simply do what they want you to do and therefore that's where the tension comes in and you've got to be you know, quite strong, quite tough, and quite independent to say, okay, I understand what you're saying here, but what about this and what about that over there? And that's doing your job uh, as a in the BBC or in you know all the broadcasters' case in the UK as public service broadcasters in trying to inform the public.
3: What would you say is the biggest challenge of covering an election, maybe one that you've come across in your experience?
4: Uh, I think the biggest challenge is r- related to what I was just talking about, really, because there'll be so much information, there'll be so much commentary going on on social media and so on, that you can end up going through a campaign just reporting the spin of the day and all of the little different things that have happened that day. Uh, and if you'd like, you can report the polls and the horse race, as people put it. So who's ahead, who's not ahead, And actually, that's not really standing back and giving the public you know, a much broader or deeper sense of what the real issues are at stake in this election. You can get completely caught up in the daily swirl of what's going on and then get to the end of it and think, actually, we never really told them about this issue or that issue, and actually the polls were completely wrong, so we spent so much time telling them something which didn't turn out to be the case. So I think, again, it's that having that strength and independence to stand back a bit from all the malay and the noise of a campaign and what's going on to say what really matters here for the public to understand and know about and how can I get that across?
3: In terms of covering local and national uh, parties and things like that, how do you, how do you prioritise... Or well, how would you go about getting a good balance of local and national?
4: Well, it depends who your audience is. So, mm-hmm. if you're working for a local radio station, primarily you're going to be doing the local story. If you're working in the national newsroom, you're primarily going to be doing the national story. But of course, the two are very closely related. So, you need to reflect a little bit of each. If you're doing the national story, in the national newsroom, a flavour of what's happening on the ground around the country and how it may differ in the north, east, to the southwest or whatever is really important. But equally, if you're uh, if you're doing the local a uh, uh, report on a local constituency, mm-hmm. putting in the context of the big national story, is also important. But the pro- you know the priority should be what y- what your audience is interested in. So our final question then is:
2: What advice would you give us in terms of covering our first lecture? Any tips?
4: Uh, I- I'd say really, it's uh, uh, of course get swept up in the excitement of it. You know, elections are fantastic things to report, but also try and stay independent and try and think for yourself you know, what does the public actually need to know here? We can see what the parties want to tell them and we can see what the spin is and all the rest of it, but what do they really need to know? And what are the things that people aren't saying? What are the things that people aren't talking about and how important are those? So keeping that distance and keeping that independence and asking those awkward, difficult questions that no one else is talking about. I I always used to say if everyone's talking about the same thing, there must be some really interesting stuff that nobody's talking about and that's that's the place to go. Richard Sandbrook, thank you very much. Pleasure.
3: That was Richard Sandbrook. Uh, So what did everyone think of that interview?
1: Yeah, it's useful, isn't it? Because I think for the first time, we have to go into an election with a different cap on. I think even if you've kind of studied journalism or even been a student of politics before whatever, through whatever avenue that may have been, We've kind of been on the outside. I think for the first time, we're on the inside slightly, and that's quite daunting. So it's great to hear from somebody who's covered you know, six elections, that wealth of experience. It does you know, hammer home some of the challenges we'll be facing, some of the things now we have to constantly
0: think about. To start with, I think one of the more interesting things was he was talking about impartiality, um, which like you say, now that we're on the other side, we're going to have to think about a little bit as well. Um, Obviously with the Ofcom rules that we've also got to follow. But I thought one of the interesting things he said was how um, impartiality can be viewed in so many different ways. And it's not necessarily just the amount of time that you give to each party. It's also how you cover that particular party. I mean, we were thinking about the famous Diane Abbott interview where she is kind of caught out for not knowing the amount of numbers of Labour councillors that have been lost on that particular day. And if you were just doing it in terms of timing, you could say that the party being given five minutes of time on on air. But in reality, that was far more damaging than it was um, good for the Labour Party. So, I mean, how do you judge impartiality is going to be a tricky thing for us, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think... It's it's difficult because in our own little bubble we've got these four Cardiff constituencies. We've got on the Nash, same as the national level. You've got the Conservatives. You've got Labour. You've got although switched around in terms of who's leading and who's in opposition. You've got the Lib Dems. You've got Plaid Cymru. You've got the Brexit, Brexit Party. Party. So we still have to think about these things, but even on a local level. But like Will said, you know, and, and like Professor Sandbrook said in in his in his um in his interview you don't give five minutes to everybody anymore because nope. people are, are parties are representing different people and different amounts of people. But I think it's something we really have to keep in mind over the next mm-hmm. sort of five, five, six weeks.
0: I think also tricky for us is, and, and we'll talk about this more when we do an episode on debates, but it it's like you say, how much time do you give to each party? Because if you base it on parliamentary seats or even on how many seats a party is likely to win, you'd say don't give much time to the Brexit party because they're unlikely at the minute in these predictions to win any. But on the other side, they're, they're, they're third in Wales at the minute. They're polling at 15%. And nationwide, they'll get millions of votes, similar to, I think, UKIP in 2015 got 12% of the vote. Yeah, about is, 3 yeah. million votes, wasn't it? 3 about million, million votes, but yeah. they didn't win a seat. So, it's, again, how do, you kind of, mm. s- how do you say which parties are influential and which aren't?
1: Exactly, and it plays into that idea, doesn't it, in terms of your... Sometimes you can take things for granted... So you can go into an election. I think some of our our colleagues on the course today have been talking about how um, certain publications or certain broadcasters have already started calling it the Brexit election. Now, that's agenda setting, isn't it, in terms of it's setting that that's mm. going to be the one thing that dominates?
2: I think in terms of us as a four as well, I think we've joined these mailing lists for party PR to have a of soundbites. We sort of touched on that in the interview with uh, Richard Sandbrook. But it's our challenge to digest these type of things and think what is true, what's not true, and how we'll, you know, convey their information in a more accurate, analytical, fact check type of response.
3: Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting as well that he was saying that we need to look for what people aren't talking about because it is easy to look at what mainstream media is doing, like BBC or ITV or um, LBC or any other news outlet and think, right, let's let's do what they're doing, let's copy them. But I think what the challenge for us is to do something different and try and look for what people aren't talking about, especially on the local level and the four Cardiff constituencies that we're focusing on.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and just touching what Evan said as well. Not being taken in and becoming—I know we're not doing it anymore, but we were covering four parties, one each, and it's not becoming a kind of mouthpiece for that party, especially Mm. because you're a student journalist and you kind of—we're very keen to get stories—and you might be a little bit too grateful if a councillor gives you a tip off. It's how do you? take that tip off, but not suddenly become just the mouthpiece of that councillor. Well, I
1: was going to say, we've already seen it at council level. You know, mm. for, for people listening who maybe have never um, even been to a council meeting, um, we went along to one um, earlier or last late last month. Um, and we'd already made ourselves aware to, to local councillors of, of different parties. And they were more than happy to speak to us, you know, for, for the yeah. right intent, for good intentions. But
0: then On and off the
1: record. On and off say. the record, yeah. absolutely. Mm. But then, you know, it's almost as if you've got to avoid them taking you under their wing because then you can become influenced by, yeah. by
2: people. You just get swallowed up into that political mainstream, that political gulf of, you know, all this well, propaganda, all this, you know, media stuff coming out there.
1: Especially... Like he alluded to, in terms of a time where you've got social media, yeah. where you're just bombarded by everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to be quick. Everyone wants to tweet something the first time it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been through classes that have taught us, you know, how to be as efficient as we can be on social media. Um, but you know, I'd like to hear what you guys think about that in terms of how we're going to to fact check and kind of distance ourselves from the the event that is politics and and actually be as you know, stand back and be as analytical as we possibly can.
2: I think a lesson for me this week is, but the always read the small print underneath the type of polls or the statistics what are coming out from these type of party machines. You know, famously this week there was a Lib Dem poll that came out in the uh, northeast Somerset, which is Jacob Rees-Mogg's constituency, and it became very. It said uh, what was the exact wording of it, it is, but they would vote for. It was it, something along uh, the lines, lines wasn't off, it, of yes.
1: if there was only two parties in the running, yes. Conservatives One of them being and Lib then li- how, yeah. how would you vote? Yeah, but if so you mean, it completely slants the way people make that. Exactly, decision. but if
2: you were looking at it from an outsider's view and you just saw the poll being that close without reading the small print underneath, you'd be number wiser, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely.
0: And blah, similar blah. to today as well. We've got the um, the Tories are defending a, a post that they say was satirical of Keir Starmer of course. answering a question on, I think it was on Brexit. Um, which they say was obviously a kind of joke, but the Labour Party are arguing was a a kind of deliberate manipulation of what he said. Um, So again, you've got to be careful of these kind of videos because even coming from major political parties you Mm -hmm. expect wouldn't want to be caught out kind of... I I don't want to call it fake news it's a pejorative term, but Mm -hmm. you have to be careful of these kind of sources.
2: Super edited sources. Yeah,
0: exactly.
3: (laughs) And you have to be sceptical at every level. Like, even if we are... Because I feel like there's a tendency that even if we are doing like a hyper local level of Cardiff, you think that well, you know the big national stories and the parties those are the ones that are really you know pushing the boat out and being a bit and um,
1: not not assuming anything either, yeah you know? like and I think another thing that we often get mixed up by is things like making predictions you know when journalists make predictions that's quite frightening for me because i was listening to a podcast the other day and there was a, a prominent journalist on there who's published you know weekly um and they were predicting what they thought was going to happen and that sets a tone you know if you think that that's going to happen you get caught up in the event of it especially with social media and especially with that that the the circus that is an election yes
2: now more than ever i think it's important to bear in mind but this election we've got, dare I say, is one of the most unique elections we're ever going to have, mm. in respect of what has previously happened, what we're at now, and what could happen. is that I don't think it fits the normal narrative of what an election would usually be. You know, it's going to be such a defined type of election. And well, the left-right
0: go- split is kind of uh, gone now, hasn't it? It's yeah. more of a remain Leave yeah. type of split. Kind of the way people define themselves, isn't yeah. it?
3: Yeah, and this is the third, third election in the last four years yeah. we've had, and which is crazy to think it's
1: quite daunting isn't it what what we're up against but obviously as well you know so many people would love to be in this position to to spend six months dedicating basically our time to this so it's pretty cool and i think that's quite a nice place to finish on for this first episode like we said earlier we've got loads coming up over the next five weeks loads of useful stuff for us and as well hopefully for for people listening We're going to be back as soon as we can, really, as soon as we can get back in here with with another guest. But until then, we're we're going to come at you quickly with some details about social media and different things. And then then we're going to catch you again.
0: Yep, you can find us on Twitter at HowToElection.
3: And you can also find us on Instagram at HowToElection.
0: And that's how
1: you can stay in touch with us. But for now, goodbye.